Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and I'm very tired, thank you for asking. My guest this week is Luke Higginson, a Toronto filmmaker whose first feature, Relax, I'm From the Future, stars Reese Darby as a man named Casper, who insists he's arrived in 2022 to prevent a catastrophe, convincing a young woman, played by Gabrielle Graham, to help him set things right. Which, of course, just makes other things worse. The film premiered at last year's Fantasia Festival and opens in U.S. theaters this Friday, September 22nd, which is also the day of its Canadian preview screening at the Carlton Cinemas in Toronto, where Luke and Cass will be in attendance for a Q&A. The formal Canadian release date is October 6th. It's a delightful comedy with some really great ideas, and you should see it. Luke picked 24-hour party people. Michael Winterbottom's freewheeling 2002 look at the rise of the Manchester music scene in the late 1970s when a TV presenter called Tony Wilson wandered into a Sex Pistols show and walked out with a determination to create an integrated music kingdom that would come to include Factory Records, the Hacienda Club, and whatever else he could think of. Built on the perfect casting of Steve Coogan as Wilson and surrounding him with an all-killer, no-filler stream of up-and-coming British actors, it's a nervy, giddy, metafictional masterwork that should have had a much bigger impact than it did. But that's rock and roll for you. This is someone else's movie. It's literally one of my favorite films. I I feel like it's well regarded, but I also think it's underrated. Like I think it's I think it's one of the best films ever made. <laughs> I think it's uh really funny. I think it's a great example of how to do a sort of a biopic about uh a, a scene or 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 a, a style of music. And I also think on top of just being very, very funny, I think it is my favorite film about uh, making art for art's sake. Like, mm-hmm. I just think it has this beautiful purity of vision about the value of of art in and of itself. And I uh, I just, I'm always very moved by it. And I've, I watch it many times. It's very much my comfort film. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a while. And revisiting it is fascinating because... First, you're kind of gobsmacked by how terrible it looks, like how deliberately terrible it looks. Uh, Michael Winterbottom was playing with digital video, and and I think the the Blu-rays are actually some weird, like five seventy six i or something. Some weird resolution. Is there that even a Blu-ray? I, there I tried is. To, oh, okay. I tried to find one. And I couldn't. Yeah, I still just have it on DVD. Yeah. Have you watched what the deleted scenes look like? Yes, I saw them a while back. If you think the movie looks bad, those deleted scenes, like it is shocking. It is, it is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's actually another thing I love about. It. I find it sort of quite inspiring to like <laughs> see that you can make a movie that good from footage that looks like that. Yeah, yeah, and it is this thing, right? Like that was right around the same time as Twenty Eight Days Later, and people were playing with with DV, but it wasn't quite HD yet. And it, in this case, it does the same thing. It almost never works. To, mm-hmm. to revisit a movie like that. It's like some of the early spot Soderbergh experiments and there's some other indies from the, around the same time where it's just like, look what we can do with digital video. It's like, yeah, but it's gross. Um, and 20, 28 Days Later and 24 Hour Party People are the two that hold up for me because in both cases, the aesthetic serves the material. Like 28 Days Later, it looks like someone brought a camcorder to the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. And this has the hazy... Like, this is what a Coke memory feels like. Like, all the colors are smeared and you're not really sure if you were there, but everybody's having a really interesting time. And and ultimately, you know, your, your eyes adjust in about five seconds, but it is really interesting to kind of be pulled out of it every now and then by by the way the sunlight pixelates or the, uh, yeah, sure. it, it, 
it was a fascinating yeah. revisit. It, yeah, no, it's 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 funny, I, and uh, and I, I I also just think it works so well with the fact that like one of the things that I love about the film is that it it is it very much sort of romanticizes this 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 period in in Manchester, but it's also very very willing to show it being ugly and lame and like awkward and like it 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 doesn't sugarcoat it while it mythologizes it so like you you will see a scene of a show that is being presented as this sort of monumental artistic moment where there's like six people in the audience dancing very badly in a place that looks terrible and yeah. it's just that is just that is so true to the experience of sort of uh, uh going to see shows in a, in a sort of an indie scene and it's uh i love it i love that element of the film yeah it's yeah and the i mean well i'm just thinking like the first pistols concert where um where steve coogan as alan partridge as Tony Wilson, because that's the other thing um, that, that, that Coogan and Wilson and Partridge are one person. It's, it's, it's yeah. uh, my, my, uh, my, we, well, we weren't married yet, but I was, I was dating this wonderful woman uh, named Kate from whose family is from Stockport, which is just outside Manchester. And she very much uh, wanted to see the movie because she'd been following Coogan and Partridge and there's this whole, you know, Mancunian continuum thing of culture. And, you know, she was, she came to Canada uh, with her parents in 1978 or 79. And I can never remember the exact year. And Manchester happened once she was here, but they would go back and forth and her brothers would come and tell stories and, and she's, you know, she's, fully versed in it. So she really wanted to see this. And and I think she brought a very skeptical eye to it and it won her over almost immediately because she knew, she remembered Tony Wilson. She grew up watching him as a kid. He was around. And then to have Coogan base Partridge on Wilson more or less, although I've asked them both and they disagree. They don't think that uh, <laughs> that's the case, but I mean, the similarities are, un, are un, unmissable. And then of course, to have, uh, the only difference between Alan Partridge and Coogan's performance of Tony Wilson is the accent is slightly different, but the, the physicality, the pomposity, the confidence, the unearned confidence and swagger are identical. And so once he starts breaking the fourth wall as Coogan, it stitches together with his Partridge work and his own work as a comedian. And it's, it's, it may actually be one of the greatest pieces of, of casting, uh, like full stop. Yeah. He's like, everybody else in the movie is somebody too, which, which just keeps rolling, which is absolutely fascinating. Oh, that's Simon Pegg showing up for five seconds. And yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy playing Ian Curtis, which I'd totally forgotten um, until I saw the film again is, is, um, is Sean Harris who, who plays, yeah, he's a master <laughs> villain in Mission Impossible. He's also, he's a, a seething, he's like a Gollum character in this utterly risible Michael Caine movie, Harry Brown from about 10 years ago. He's in the Red Riding films as a, I think he played a corrupt cop, but he's so good at being unsympathetic as a, as an antagonist. And in, and when you see, when I saw him here as Curtis, I almost didn't recognize him anyway, because he's just so open and sad. Like it's such a different performance and Winterbottom has the ability to find exactly the right person at exactly the right time to play those roles. And every scene just gives you someone else who's somehow at their best in this film. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. Um, and I also think uh, this is both the script and and uh, Winterbottom, but there's there's it does such a good job. Like there's so many characters in the film and there are so many characters that really barely get screen time. And yet the film is so good at creating just like you'll get one little scene and you'll understand so much about the character in just those few moments that I, I, a great example is, is uh, uh, Peter Hook, the bass player from, from Joy Division, New Order. Like he, he barely has any lines in the, the film, but there's one concert scene. And in the space of about 30 seconds, you see him smash a bottle over the head of a neo-Nazi. And then you see him steal a cigarette from Ian Curtis while he's having a seizure and be completely un, uninterested in, in, and you just get so much about Peter Hook's personality and that little, window of which he's never the focus of any of that stretch of time. And it just, it does that with so many different characters where you get so much detail of these characters with, in such a short amount of time. I just think it's really impressive the way it does that. Yeah. Because the, the story is of a, of a business and a musical movement that shook itself apart in almost no time. Mm -hmm. You just kind of strap in and, and, Again, the DV just makes you feel like you're right there in the moment watching archival footage as mm -hmm. it happens. And uh, people keep turning and yelling at us. Like there's that little moment, I think it's Devoto, the real Devoto, who says, I don't remember this happening. Um, but he wouldn't. Like even yeah, if it happened, no, exactly. he's out of his mind. Of course he wouldn't remember it. They built in, they built in all of these safeguards. Yeah, absolutely. And it's followed by the one of one of the one of my favorite lines in a movie full of lines that I love about like saying like he insists it's never happened but if you have the choice between the truth and the legend you print the legend like it's right. and that is that is a a yeah a thesis statement for the whole film and uh in the commentary track uh for it I believe it's in the commentary track uh Tony Wilson uh is one of the people on the track and even says he's like I've never seen a film that is so full of factual errors that is nonetheless so true and that's sort of how <laughs> Uh, it's it's I, I don't know I think that's beautiful I really love it yeah yeah and it, I will point out here that I I never get autographs I I find it just you know silly uh, to bother people when you're talking to them when you're speaking to them like a professional but there was this one time I was I was quietly building an anniversary present for Kate uh, and it was having Winterbottom Coogan and Tony Wilson sign. A DVD of 24 hour party people, because I know how much it meant to her and, and I loved it. And it was just a great excuse to get them to loosen up too, in case they were not, but they're, they're, they were all very giving with their time. Uh, winter bottom signed it, Coogan signed it and just the usual, you know, like I think one of them said, you know, happy anniversary Kate or something like that. And then Tony Wilson just signed it and wrote pack of fucking lies. <laughs> yeah. And just <laughs> doubling down, tripling down mm -hmm. on the, on the hall of mirrors of it all. It was, it was, yeah. It's the only thing he could have written. Now, in retrospect, it's it's hmm. utterly in character. And it's that that is why that, yeah, sort of on top of all these other sort of superlatives I'm waving laying on this film, I I it's my favorite sort of just pure example of like postmodernism in a film. Like it's sort of like you you that stretch of time, there were a bunch of films that leaned so heavily into it, right? Like your your natural born killers and your sort of uh like and it's this is my favorite. It's the one that is the most sort of bald faced about it it is like they literally he literally says the medium is the message in the film yeah, yeah, um yeah. like it but it's just it's so funny and charming uh and 
and yeah, and I think and deep, like as it does all of it. So it sort of uh, negates the the common criticism of postmodernism that it sort of has no heart and has no soul. And um, yeah, so it's 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 my favorite postmodern film as well. <laughs> I mean, it's all of them. It's everything. It's it is a party. Well, somebody once said that the uh, the worst thing about uh, I think it was either the second or third Austin Powers movie is that it feels like a party you're not invited to where everybody's having a great mm. time and you're just like, eh, I, okay, great. Good for you. Can I go home? I don't like, I don't want to be here. Um, yeah. but 24 hour party people does it. It's, it has a, it has a friendly soul. Like uh, all this horrible mm. stuff is happening. There is, genuine despair in the Eden Kerr storyline and, and other people ruin their lives in the process of this film. And we're allowed to watch it happen. Other people are doing damage to themselves that won't even register for years, but is happening in front of us. And it's still, it's so compassionate and sweet hearted. Um, yeah. It's, and it, that's also unlike a lot of Winterbottom's work. He's not oh, often yeah. known for his upbeat, uh, <laughs> upbeat resolutions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, like I said, like I like I really find uh, it moving. Like like the 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 ending uh, or the climactic scene in the office when Tony Wilson sort of reveals that he, there was no paperwork involved in Factory Records and sort of he has nothing to sell out and he yeah. sort of avoids giving himself the temptation to even sell out as as the sort of culmination of this running thread through the film like when there's a, a an artist playing for two people in a thing and he talks to him after and goes that was wonderful it was beautiful and and just he it it's such a pure yeah it's such a pure love love of of, of art for art's sake I, I i think it's a very very beautiful heart to that film it's and when I say that Michael Winterbottom doesn't always allow for a happy ending, it doesn't mean he's a cruel filmmaker. He's also the person who has captured, you know, three trip movies where Steve yeah. Coogan and Rob Brydon are fictional versions of themselves having existential crises all the time. And it's very sympathetic to both of them, even though I think it, it knows they're not going to really figure it out. Um, 24 hour party people is about the, and I say this coming off of my first Tiff as a programmer, right? Like it's about the exhilaration of being inside of a whirlwind and knowing yes. that there's this movement that you're part of that if you're lucky, other people will experience. And if you're not, yeah. you got to be there. So fuck them. Like it's, it's really something specific that I never would have understood before this year. Mm. Um, just the being dragged along on sheer momentum and exhaustion and still knowing that you are at the core of something unrepeatable and and yeah. people make those movies all the time right because it's always the first act of any of any artist's biopic or a star is born story or something like that and a handful of them capture it and a handful of them use it as the inciting incident and move on from there 24-hour party people immerses you in it from start to finish this is the thing that happened and how you can't how we the audience can't understand it really and that's the that's the other brilliant thing about casting Coogan is that he, if he wants to, he can be, I mean, he, it was built right on the, on the poster, right? Like genius artist twat. He was the, he was the, <laughs> the, the hapless idiot who bumbled into this thing. Just that moment yeah. where he's at the Sex Pistols concert, looks around and just decides to start pogoing with this little shrug yeah. and gives himself and he over looks to terrible it. terrible doing it. He looks so lame and it's yeah. great. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. He was, 
Tony Wilson was the absolute wrong person to do any of this. Uh, <laughs> you see it, as you say, in the boardroom scene where it's just revealed that, no, you actually were the worst possible person to try to take this over because a handshake will not hold up. And, you know, goodwill is useless in court. But it's at the same time, he's the only person who could have done it, right? Like, he's yeah, the only exactly, person who had exactly. the empty enthusiasm that would get people to do it with him. Yeah. Yeah. Which, as a film director, I assume is something you're intimately familiar with because I've met lots of people who yeah. can convince, you know, five to 500 people to go on this, this thing with them and make something that doesn't exist, exist. You have to believe that doing something impossible is possible to do. Like it's, yeah, it's, that's an essential part of, of making an indie film. It's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just what you have to do. And, and it's uh, yeah, it, I, it's very much, <laughs> very much the thing. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. I've been wrapped up in TIFF this week, but there's a lot coming, including reviews of Celine Song's wonderful debut, Past Lives, and last year's festival premiere, What's Love Got to Do With It? Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. I guess you could call it creative mania. It's the thing that everyone recognizes, but not everyone buys into, right? Like you can, you can always tell when somebody's hustling you with the same pitch. That's the thing yeah. that this movie captures is the, the genuine excitement and the way it just keeps building and building and building. It's um, uh, John Carney's films once and Sing yeah. Street. And now well, there's a new one, Florence and he specializes in the electricity of creation. Like the thing that happens between people when they're making art. Yeah. And I thought when I saw Sing Street, which was his third film, I think, was, eh, you know, he's doing the thing he does. Mm. But he's found a new context for it. And then with Flora and Sons, like, yeah, he's doing the thing he does. And, and I came back around to understanding that no one else does this. No one else is making those kinds of movies. And Winterbottom is sort of playing with the same fire. There's this idea of being, tr being pulled into... Um, an impossible venture because it feels right. And the people doing it are all genuinely excited and they're all making a colossal mistake ultimately, yeah. but the art they create is so good. And I mean, that, that whole little digression about the, the album covers and mm -hmm. the expense of printing them and every single song. person. Yeah. Every single yeah. person in the room knows this is too expensive, but no one will ever do this again. You, you have to do it. You have to spend the money. It doesn't matter if you get it back because you're creating something that's forever. Yeah. Uh, another one of my favorite lines in the film uh, is uh, when they do their first show uh, as, as factory and they, the, the guy who designed the posters brings the posters advertising the show to the show for the first time and uh, 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 sort of, they're useless and sort of opens them up and uh, uh, Tony loves them. And he's like, they're beautiful. They're beautiful, but useless. And as William Morris said, nothing useless can be truly beautiful. <laughs> and it's this, uh, yeah, that, that, but then he contradicts himself later in the film. Like it, that dichotomy is so much of what that film is about. Like the, like utility versus inspiration versus sort of, yeah, it, it's, it's 
yeah, it's a, it's 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 a it's a very very cool discussion that the film is constantly having with itself. Yeah, and we're invited to appreciate it too. It's the mm-hmm. it's it's not for the movie itself. It's for the audience. It's like it's a shared yes. conversation, acknowledging over and over again that the futility is the point. That that yes. the reason yes. the reason these efforts are being commemorated is because we still know the music, right? Like it doesn't matter that, I mean, it does, of course it matters that Ian Curtis took his own life, but he doesn't leave us because the songs don't go away. And, and that's the thing that, that's the thing that Winterbottom does too, that a lot of other films about artists who are no longer with us um, miss, which is the music is the reason, like it's not, People like Jim Morrison was, um, yes, I know Oliver Stone. He was a golden god and all of that stuff. And he wore, wore pants that smelled and, and was very, generally very obnoxious and all of those things. But the reason people remember The Doors is that the music is really good. It's not Jim Morrison was a Lizard King poet philosopher who was gone too soon. That's part of the legend, but it's irrelevant to the music. Mm. Uh, the music yeah. was made when he was alive. You can hear him. He's living. That's how that works. And and the same for Ian Curtis and the same for... um a couple of other people who are now gone in the, who appear in the film, but they're they're The movie isn't memorializing them in the same way. It's celebrating them. And mm. the fact that the fact that Winterbottom and, and Frank Cottrell Boyce, who I, I can't give enough credit to, although I know there was a lot of improv in the film, that screenplay is the backbone and the structure 100%. of it to just sort of stop still and watch Ian Curtis's last day is mm. so smart. And it's been replicated. I've seen a couple of other movies try it and, and try to do the same thing with like, just like, yeah, we've all been having a good time, but wait. And what Winterbottom is doing, he's not manipulating us. He's putting us in the position of understanding how everybody felt when Curtis left them, right? Like you, you had this great time and everything's going so well and yeah, they're fighting, but whatever. And then this one guy goes home and you never see him again. And it lands so well in this movie. It is so compassionate and so sympathetic and it's a heartbreaker. And also, again, you know, like Sean Harris has made his living playing a human rat for the last 20 years. And I'm shocked to find myself <laughs> feeling sorry for this guy. And But he did it. He, yeah. he was exactly the right person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that the the sort of the surreal beauty of, of uh, the, the tribute to him that that. Uh, uh that uh, tony uh uh wilson does with that sort of the what what do you call it? the guy with the bell who bellows um the like town crier guy sort of just and it's just this very strange scene of and i have no idea if it probably never happened but like of him just getting this town crier who happened to be next to him to sort of yell this tribute to ian curtis because he knew that it wouldn't be covered by sort of mainstream media at the time mm-hmm. that and it's his way of trying to do a thing with what he had to celebrate this thing that mattered to him it's just this very bizarre scene that i find very yeah moving yeah yeah i'm i want it to have happened i don't know that yeah, it me did too. but it feels right <laughs> I, like it know, feels like it should have happened yeah yeah it it, it, it happened because it's in the movie so yeah <laughs> yes exactly and he I mean, the, he reopened the Hacienda like they well, they didn't really. They rebuilt it because um, the original building had been demolished the year the film was released. But um, uh, what was it? Um, supposedly they rebuilt it in a Manchester warehouse and um, 
it ran as a real nightclub for a couple of nights. They actually ran it to make sure it had the right atmosphere. And New Order ran the DJ booth. And Coogan uh, said he got goosebumps when he walked into the new space because he had performed at the Hacienda in the, in the 80s as a comic and said it was something like so traveling cool. through time. And, and it's, again, you don't do this unless you love something very, very much. And it's the same sort of folly, yeah. right? Like the, the 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 foolishness of spending all this money to recreate something that looked crappy and dingy in the first place, and making it look crappy and dingy. But it's the only way to yeah. make this movie. You have to you have to make sure everybody gets it. Yeah. No. It, there's there's so a version of this that could have yeah sort of would have looked so much better and would have felt so much more false and would have yeah no I, I can I can see the version of it that would be lame and forgotten basically. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to put it too. It would look better and felt false. Mm. Um, and we've seen those movies. We've seen like, everybody knows what those, what those biopics look like uh, when you know, like art directed bruises and things like that. And, yeah. and yeah. I mean, this one feels very much, I revisited Sid and Nancy not too long ago, Alex Cox's film, and it feels very much okay. a conversation. They're sort of running in parallel, um, so. except that Sid and Nancy is a grand tragedy. Um, and knows it, you know, like it has this huge artistic flair and Winterbottom who had made movies like that already is just going out of his way not to do that. I mean, this yeah. is like what, four years after the claim uh, and, and his version of Jude the Obscure where yeah. he had made these big artful period adaptations, literary pieces, big important movie stuff. And this is just like, no, nah, I'm going to fuck around with my friends because I really want to. And yeah. And in giving himself that freedom, yeah, I think he made one of his best films, which is the other thing too, right? Like you don't know how it'll turn out, obviously, but it's so clear that he's excited to be holding that camera and ready and and willing to catch whatever he catches. And yeah. I mean, he has the he has the good luck too. It's like watching. Okay, here, um, I had the occasion to revisit Chud recently. You remember Chud, the <laughs> Monsters Under New York? Oh yeah, movie? yeah. And yeah. the casting in that, like John Goodman is in it, uh, Sam McMurray, John Polito, um, Patricia Richardson, Richardson from Home Improvement. It's like all these New York stage actors just show up in this monster movie for two days, uh, or probably even only one day, really. And you just yeah. like it's face after face after face, and you're like, how did they get them? And then you realize, oh yeah, they just they weren't yet, they weren't there yet, they hadn't burst. Yeah. And here, I'm just I've got the cast list in front of me because I was afraid I'd leave I'd leave somebody out. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but you've got. Uh, Lenny James, Andy Serkis, Patty Considine, Shirley Henderson, uh, Keith Allen, uh, Simon Pegg, Christopher Eccleston, Rob Bryden, Peter Kay, Dave Gorman, uh, Kieran O'Brien, every single one of these people. John Sim, right? For Life on Mars plays yeah. Bernard Sumner. Yeah, yeah. And it's just face after face after face. And that's before they start throwing in the cameos. Yeah. Everybody is somebody now. It's incredible. Yeah, totally. Patty Considine's so good in that movie. I, I think he's, he just, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Amazing casting. Yeah. And Circus, I think it came, oh. this would have come out like what, three months before? I don't remember when it premiered. I think it might've been August or September, but it was definitely before Two Towers. Nobody knew who Andy Circus was. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. And that, that performance is, that's, a, that's an unbelievable performance that, that he has many of the best lines in the movie. He's so good. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's, Look, he's he's a brilliant at the mocap stuff. He's incredible, but like like I I I always want him to do more like stuff like that. I want him to I want him to be a sort of a, a, a I hesitate to say regular guy, but, but he he uh, a, a, 
uh, yeah, a weird little weird little regular guy. I I, I think he's so good at it. Uh, yeah, he's got yeah, impeccable I, timing, and he is he's like I don't know how to describe the character. He's like a compassionate asshole. <laughs> yeah, he he that, is that, trying uh, to do I, his best, but he has no people skills. The line that's burned in my brain is is uh, uh, when he sort of sees the hacienda initially and hears how much it costs, and uh, he he's just sort of like, "Well, obviously we have nothing in common. I'm a genius. You're all wankers. You'll never hear from me again." Yeah, <laughs> it's just exactly the delivery is just yeah, impeccable, incredible. Yeah, oh, it's so great. It's um, so yeah. You said you you come back to it often. When did you first see it? Did you see it theatrically originally? Or? Um, no, I saw it shortly after it had been in theaters. Actually, I was, I was in a band at the time, uh, uh, and, um, we were playing with this other band and after sound check, he asked us, he's like, have you guys seen 24 hour party people? We're like, no. He's like, you guys sound like that. And you have not seen 24 hour party people. You need to- <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had been a big fan of, of, I was already a big Joy Division fan. I didn't know the Happy Mondays at the time, uh, but I, I sort of was definitely into that scene. And we, me and my friends sort of immediately rented it and fell in love. And it sort of has been a, a thing that my friends and I quote to each other for the last, you know, 20 odd years. Uh, and so that was, yeah, that was my first exposure to it. And, um, and yeah, it did really like, there are things in that film there are like lessons in that film that i have i have taken to 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 heart uh the uh when they are uh when they are recording when martin hannett is recording the first joy division uh uh record there's there's a moment where they uh i think it's tony insists that they listen to it on a on a crappy car stereo uh because that's the only way you can know how people are really going to hear it and that's uh right that, that blew my mind hearing that at like the age of 19 or something. I was like, Oh my God, that's so smart. And like, now I'd like anytime I'm color correcting something, like you can't just look at it in the monitors of the color correction suite. You have to like play it on several crappy TVs. You have to look at it and you have to, you have anything that you're doing, you have to look at it through, uh, uh, see it the worst way that it's going to be seen and, uh, uh, do that. And, um, yeah, and and again, just that that idea of of keeping keeping in your heart why you are doing something artistically, like the 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 thing matters in and of itself, and that staying true to that is is the thing, and everything else is sort of external to that. Yeah, yeah. And well, and to, and that brings us to your film too, where you have made a movie which is a time travel movie with no visual effects, like with no, with <laughs> no special, effects. but it, but it's all, well, yeah, very few, but it, but it's all dialogue driven. It's all world building. And that requires the same sort of wild confidence in logic that, that 24 mm-hmm. hour party people has when you, when you picked it, it's just like, Oh yeah, I kind of see it. I can, I see mm. the connection because cool. it is similarly about someone who must convince everyone else mm-hmm. of his impossible goal like of, yeah. of the, get everybody else on board this this uh this ambitious well i mean almost i i don't even know how to explain it it, it is it's about <laughs> inviting other people into his mania or yes. he's right and mm-hmm. he's and he's he's absolutely you know like the thing he's talking about is the most urgent thing in the world i don't want to spoil anything but if you if you don't believe him 
he can't convince you. There's no other evidence. There's nothing. In, there's nothing he can do to say to, to. There's nothing he can do to prove that this is happening, or this will happen, or this has happened. He just yeah. has to convince people to come along, and that's exactly the same thing as mm-hmm. the thing that Twenty Four Hour Party People is about. So, I mean, did you did you know that when you wrote it, or did it come out later? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I I definitely didn't consciously do it, but that character type, that archetype of like this kind of like. Uh, uh, charismatic, non-malicious selfishness is something that I'm very attracted to in characters. I I like someone that sort of, despite not having ill intent, kind of leaves a lot of uh, uh, chaos in their wake. Uh, uh, and I I love enthusiasm. Chaotic enthusiasm is something that I I really like in in a character, and uh, that was definitely sort of always a part of that character i i always liked the the originally this was a uh a five minute short that i i wrote and directed in 2013 and and it was literally just based around i thought it would be funny if there was a time traveler who like was completely unprepared and didn't have a plan and was like it's it's something you associate so much with like planning and and uh expertise and uh sort of the the this uh that idea was sort of a funny idea to me and then when i wanted to expand it into a feature it just sort of became sort of extrapolating that into like well what does that say about um the sort of uh cavalier attitude that uh, many of us take about uh our own future and what we are doing to uh it and uh what we are not doing to uh to make it better and uh that sort of uh coincided with uh you know some some existential crises of my own around 2016 era and um uh just working through all of that stuff writing the script was very much is very much sort of the 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 soul of the movie is very much sort of what i was working through uh making it and trying to laugh at it and trying to laugh at myself a little bit yeah existential crisis in 2016 i can't imagine why unrelatable yeah totally sure yeah. sure well, how long did it take to write the script because it is really really intricate i mean did you like, it felt like you needed a flowchart or two to get it going <laughs> i probably should have had a flowchart uh but no it was it was a, it was a long time but there were also long stretches of uh of of it uh not being touched like i definitely like um, I, I spent, I spent about a year after the, the short film played Tiff, uh, sort of playing with it. And at that point it was almost like, uh, almost like sort of, uh, before sunrise with a time traveler, it was really like one night couple of people talking kind of thing. And it was bad. It wasn't good. And <laughs> I sort of realized it wasn't good at a certain point and put it back in a drawer. Um, and then, yeah, when I was sort of dealing with some stuff a few years later, I, 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 it became a thing, an outlet that I could push through. So I'd say like combined a few years, but like over the course of eight, basically. Uh, and, uh, yeah, then it sort of finally congealed into something that that felt right. But no, I I actually was very disorganized in the way I wrote it. It was very much I was sort of vomiting stuff onto the page, and then reading it back. I'm like, does that make sense? All right, there we go. And it's sort of the emotional truth of it was more important to me than the technical uh, details. And then I sort of made the technical details work uh, once I had the emotional core that I was interested in. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And and then I think we may have even already touched on it, but to that end, I mean, would you say that there was anything from 24 Hour People 
uh, from 24 hour party people that you deliberately lifted borrowed stole is there some specific line or reference that you you squeezed in there because it feels like there's um, a bunch of stuff flying around but i couldn't really put my finger on it yeah i mean certainly the like like uh uh there there's a lot of the the soundtrack is 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 mostly punk music it's sort of toronto toronto punk music that's that's all the the songs on my thing and that mm-hmm. that's sort of that musical backbone to it is definitely a thing i had in mind but I would say also on a technical level, um, I don't know how much of the stylistic choice in 24 hour party people were planned from the script stage and how much of it was him screwing around in the editing room and how much of it was improvising on set. But there was definitely, you know, uh, we had uh, Reese Darby, my star for 15 shooting days, which is not a lot of time. And he's in basically every scene in the movie and, we had to move very quickly and you have to make compromises in terms of what, how you're going to do what you're going to do. And the knowledge that this sort of freedom to uh, play around with things like the form and to be less precious about what it sort of needed to look or feel like um, in the way that that film does like that. I, I found that I went back to that film a couple of times making it. And I felt very inspired by like how unafraid of being messy. It was if that allowed to get to the humor that mattered or the, the message that mattered that sort of like that you could just be along for this chaotic ride and you could. Yeah. How, like be, be a little, be a little adventurous, be a little unafraid to sort of do stuff that might not be as clean as, uh, as you expected it to be. Yeah. yeah. And, and Darby is, I, I, I have followed him for a while. I mean, obviously from for Concords, but even in the other things that he did around the same time. And I've just recently started listening to him in podcasts or he's recently started doing them. I'm not sure which, mm-hmm. but he is, he has this remarkable chipper energy, which everyone seems to use uh, exactly in the right way for their, like he's, he's an, an element, obviously our flag means death is this incredible showcase for his range within that element. But the thing he does again, it's like Coogan, no one else does it the way he does. And it's just really original. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, does that change? Did that change the, the project once he came on? Did you have to restructure it? I mean, the charisma thing is right there, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it was so funny because no, I mean, the when we were searching for our lead, the the number one thing that was super important that I kept saying and in, in, in all the meetings and everything was that like, this is like, this is a character that has this is whoever plays this character has to be inherently likable has to just have like, off the charts, natural charisma, and you have to go with them. Because the character does a few like, like, fairly questionable things morally. And like, you you have to sort of like, be on their side, be on his side to a certain degree um, as he does some of them. And there were, you know, there were some, there were some names floated that I, 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 I was like, that can't, that that's not going to work. Like, it's just not, this person is, even if they're a good actor, it's not going to, that is the wrong energy for this character. And you're not going to go, it's not going to work. And he, when his name was floated, um, it, it honestly, he had not initially occurred to me, even though I had been a fan since Concords, uh, and just it immediately made so much sense. And his when when his manager, we were able to get the script in the hands of his manager, and his manager said, "This feels like it was written for him." And uh, and it wasn't, but it just as soon like literally, we all talked about the fact that as soon as his name came up, we started reading the script. We're like, we can hear his voice saying these lines. Like it just it just seemed 
just seemed to fit. And um, uh, I will be forever grateful that he felt the same when he read the script. And uh, uh, it, it was it really, really pretty magical. Yeah. Was... Yeah. I mean, I, I, I admit the moment he showed up, well, the moment I, the moment the film showed up and I heard about what it was and that he was the lead, I was like, oh yeah, of course, of course, I can't wait to see this. And, <laughs> and it's great. It's so much fun. It's so much goofy fun while still having that core of something real that, that I guess needs to be protected. Right. I mean, that's the whole point of the film, but, but, but the idea that you made a movie about that, um, in concert with all the other stuff that it's about it's just it's lovely and again the, this is the thing i'm seeing now more and more are, people are using a language of genre to tell non-genre stories i mean it's the sort yeah. of the reversal of the metaphor thing where you know movies like the stuff and chud and what was the other one i was thinking about just recently um the hidden like the 80s genre pictures that were made under the veil of studios or the home video boom is like they weren't really paying too much attention to the programmers it's just like here's here's x number of dollars make a movie about this thing and then the filmmakers went off and like larry cohen went off and did whatever the hell he wanted and new world pictures thought oh i thought you were going to give us a monster movie about yogurt it's like i did but you know there's some other stuff going on <laughs> yeah. and it's about like the reagan uh rollback of environmental protections and the fda being kneecapped and all the other stuff and it's also about corporate espionage and, and michael moriarty having the time of his life as this doofus investigator but also also killer yogurt like it's in there it's all in there <laughs> yeah. but it's not about the thing that it's about and now we're seeing films that use the language of genre to tell real stories that are sort of genre adjacent where like in this film there's no hint there's no proof there's no objective proof that it's a we don't see him arrive in a bubble of lightning or or any of the other stuff that you expect from uh time travel movies it's just a guy who has a story and everybody else mm -hmm. has to go along with him. Mm -hmm. But we know yeah. what kind of movie we're seeing, so it, it can be really fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, no, you're welcome. I'm not looking for a larger comment or anything. I just thought, I think it's wonderful that we're in a place now where you can say it's about this and mm -hmm. not, not in any other direction and just do like a sort of a realistic time travel movie about the here and yeah. now mm -hmm. and what that yeah, means. No, it's not. It's, it's it is it is my favorite way of telling stories i like it very much yeah my thanks to luke higginson whose first feature relax i'm from the future opens in u.s theaters this friday september 22nd there's also a canadian preview screening at the carlton cinemas in toronto on that day and luke and some of the cast will be there the full canadian release starts october 6th thanks also to ali lamare shedden she knows what she did you can find Luke on Twitter at LukeCutsVideo, all one word, and you can find 24-hour party people streaming on Hoopla and Tubi in the U.S. and Canada, and on Prime Video and Canopy in the U.S. as well. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD services. You can find me on Twitter for a little while longer at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com semcast, that's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.